0: Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we pray that it would be your spirit that leads our words, that leads the thoughts of our hearts and the meditation that we set ourselves on as we hear your text. We thank you for the stories of those who have gone before us, and we pray, oh God, that we might have the spirit to listen, to rest in your guidance and your wisdom. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're continuing a sermon series that we've been uh, working on through the summer and will continue, called Set Our Feet on Solid Ground. And in this series, we explore the lives of our biblical ancestors whose lives were transformed by God from living on shifting sands to living on a foundation that would hold. So we look at Jacob today, and the interesting thing about Jacob is next to Jesus, Jacob may well be the most intriguing person in the Bible. We know more about him than virtually any other biblical character. You may be asking yourself, I don't know much about him. How can that be? But in the Bible, he actually has more chapters of Genesis are devoted to Jacob, whose name means trickster, and his family than to any of the other patriarchs, including Abraham. He is the only person in the Bible whom we see in action as a child, a young man, a mature husband and father, and an old man contemplating death we are able to see him in action, interacting with his parents, his brothers, his wives, his father-in-law, his children, his grandchildren. And most importantly, we see him interacting with the God who has become his God, the God of his ancestors. In the Jewish Midras, which is the Jewish commentary that's been going on since 1,000 years BC, The story of Jacob is often interpreted as the story of the moral development of the nation of Israel from a band of nomadic con artists into a nation representing Yahweh. It's a story that reminds us constantly of God's faithfulness and determination to provide us with tools and opportunities to grow and evolve as human beings. Jacob dreams of a ladder, and all of a sudden we're given an image. Of the distance between Jacob as he is and Jacob as he can be. Jacob's story is the account of the people's struggle to climb that ladder, to ascend from a lower level of behavior to a higher one, and to become a more complete person, not through disguise and misrepresentation, not through deceit, but to be transformed by the hand of God through humility and through sacrifice. So listen now to the scripture. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He got them safely across the brook along with all his possessions. But Jacob stayed behind by himself, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he couldn't get the best of Jacob as they wrestled, he deliberately threw Jacob's hip out of joint. The man said, let me go, it's daybreak. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And the man said, what is your name? He answered, Jacob. The man said, but no longer. Your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, it's Israel. God-wrestler. You've wrestled with God and you've come through. Jacob asked, And what's your name? The man said, Why do you want to know my name? Then right there and then he blessed him. Jacob named the place Peniel, God's face, because he said, I saw God face to face and I lived to tell the story. The sun came up as he left Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is why Israelites to this day don't eat the hip muscle because Jacob's hip was thrown out of joint. This is the word of the Lord. Now right off the bat, this story challenges our concept of a tame God, challenges our concept of a passive savior. Sometimes I think that we get spiritually complacent and we begin to equate God- Presence only with a calm sea, only with a routine life with no drama, that we begin to equate God's presence with the absence of chaos. When the danger has been avoided, when your heart stops pounding and you can breathe normally again, you know that God is there when you're not afraid anymore and you can feel your strength coming back like blood rushing into a numb limb. That's a very appealing idea, and of course it's appealing to us because we live, we feel, in so much chaos day to day. But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't back it up. In that richly troubling book, much of God's best work takes place in total chaos. With people scared half out of their wits, We have Elijah trembling under his broom tree, pleading with God to take his life. Mary listening to an angel's ambitious plans for plunging her into scandal. And frightened disciples gathered in a room in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit slams open doors and this rushing wind comes in. Flames erupt and people are talking to each other in their own languages and everyone understands. It was so crazy, people literally thought they were drunk. Paul lying flat on his belly on the Damascus Road with all his lights put out, blind. Perhaps because we know how these stories turn out, we tend to overlook the wrestling that went on in the middle of them. The stark terror of being jumped by an unknown assailant, the collapse of the known world, the reduction of everything one has been and done, To this scorched moment of fighting for one's life. Sometimes we look around at our life and we say, This isn't what I signed up for. We want to tame God to meet our needs for protection, for prosperity. Over and over again, I would hear in the trauma room, This isn't supposed to happen to them, they're a good person for a God who will operate within the domestic boundaries we have set for ourselves without doing anything to frighten us unnecessarily. We want to be chosen. We want to be saved. We want to be set apart without struggle, without pain. I think it's a reasonable longing. We are, after all, human beings. No one in her or his right mind has to be attacked or frightened or wounded, and yet... And yet, in this instance, that's how it comes sometimes, the present and the blessing of God. Sometimes it comes in the middle of the night in the desperate wrestling that is, who would have thought it, the answer to all your prayers. So it's been over 20 years since Jacob left home, 20 years, or to be more accurate, It's been 20 years since he poached his brother's birthright and tricked a blessing from his old blind father. He conspired with his mother against his father and he succeeded in tearing the family completely apart. 20 years since he headed into the wilderness north of Beersheba and dreamed his famous ladder to heaven dream and heard a promise made to him from God proving once and for all that God is not a moralist. Jacob is a liar and a cheat, and still he gets that dream. His own own holy vision of the traffic going on between heaven and earth. And that should have changed him. That should have transformed him. He saw something miraculous, but it didn't. It didn't change him. But now, 20 years later, it's time to go home. God says, return to the land of your ancestors and to your kindred. Everything has to come full circle. We can't get away in life with leaving things undone, especially when it comes to our own healing and the healing of the community. The Lord said to Jacob, return, and I'll be with you. So Jacob made ready to go with no conditions this time. The first time around, he said, If you will do certain things for me, God, I'll serve you. This time around, none of that kind of language. Somehow he had grown to understand that he wasn't a self-made man. In fact, there was no such thing. There were no more ifs in him about who God was. There was no longer any thought of, if you'll do this for me. There was only thought of, I'll do what you say. 20 years in the making He's humble in what he asks from God. He simply asked, him, deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother. That was all that he asked, his own life and the lives of the family. He had changed, but he couldn't imagine that God had been working on Esau either. He still had an ego, after all. And he feared the brother whom he had robbed not once, but twice. In a late effort to repay the debt and, honestly, to Greece's own homecoming, he sends ahead gifts to his brother. Slaves and servants and great flocks of sheep and goats, which he had acquired over the year, camels and donkeys, and all of these moving in a great herd and a great tribe across the countryside toward Esau like the living shadows of clouds. Then Jacob settled into a camp for the night, or at least he tried to, but he had an uneasy spirit. He was disquieted. A powerful restlessness had got hold of him and it would not let him go. And so in that restlessness, he grew fearful. He got up in the same night and he moved, he moved across the river, everyone and everything. He moved his family, his servants, Everybody across the river, and then he went back to be by himself on the other side. The campfire was reduced to a ring of ash, and the rush of the water drowned every human sound that might have come to him from the other side. So he was particularly alone. Have you ever been alone like that? So alone that you can hear your own mind thinking the pumping of your own heart. But on this night, he wasn't alone for long. No sooner had he caught his breath, than there was someone on his back. The Bible uses the Hebrew word for man, ish, to describe the attacker. Jacob himself says it was God who attacked him. Whoever it was, this man, this God, Jacob knew it smelled of heaven. Whoever he is, he's pretty strong. Jacob, after all, has lifted a stone pillar at Bethel and hauled another solid slab of rock off a well in Haran. He's a big man himself. But in this well-muscled ish, he has found his rival. And at first, there's no talking at all. Just a dull slap of flesh against flesh as one of them gains a hold and the other one breaks it. They're wrestling. Both of them sucking air between the low grunts that seem to come from somewhere deep in the earth beneath them. They fight by feel, not by sight. It's that dark. Silhouettes against the rock by the firelight until the sky lightens. And when the sky lightens, the ish gives the stranger new strength. He drops his weight, and Jacob's hip cracks. But Jacob still will not turn him loose. And finally, the stranger speaks for the first time. Physical strength has failed to decide this contest. It's time to try words. Let me go, he says to Jacob, for the day is breaking. It's a new day. The night is over. But Jacob is unsympathetic. He's got a hold of someone who smells like heaven and that he's wrestled with and suffered an injury from and he's not going to let him go. He's not going to have suffered all night long for to see the stranger turn his back on him and walk away. So Jacob, doing what Jacob does, makes a deal with him. I will not let you go, he says, unless you bless me. What is it that I am going to come away with out of this suffering? What is it that I am going to gain? How am I going to be changed from this night of wrestling? The stranger responds by asking him a question, a question that brings Jacob full circle. What is your name? He asks Jacob. If you listen hard, I think you can hear the echo of another question another time when Jacob's father Isaac old sick who could barely see asked Jacob to identify himself who who are you Isaac said and in that moment Jacob said I am Esau your oldest son and the plan was put into motion To steal his birthright, he had lied to his blind father, and his father had laid hands on Esau, on Jacob's head, and given him Esau's birthright. But 20 years plus that night have changed him. This time when the stranger asks him, what is your name, he says, Jacob. And the name falls away from him like a second skin. He is no longer Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster. He is given a new name. His name is Israel, the survivor, the striver with God. The stranger doesn't return the favor of identifying himself. He keeps his name to himself, but he delivers the blessing nonetheless. And the night-long embrace is over. And the day breaks, and Jacob is made brand new. So Jacob limps towards his reunion with Esau. He will, after all, live his whole life never forgetting how he was transformed. The struggle, the wrestle, the sound of a cracking hip, the brokenness. So he limps toward his reunion with Esau and when he sees Esau, he is so surprised he has been practicing his speech he sent his servants before he didn't know how Esau would receive him but he says later on that he sees the face of God when he sees his brother and his brother runs and welcomes him in much the same way that Jesus tells us the prodigal father welcomed his son his exile is over and he's home it was the answer to his prayer at Bethel. Please just let me go home. Not the comfort and the safety part, but the God be with me part. And it was also the end of his making deals with God. He was a changed person. It was the last act in his struggle to control God. Jacob had learned and not learned because God had mixed the deals. God has simply overlooked them, knowing that there was so much more to Jacob than even Jacob could understand. He gave Jacob what he needed instead of what he wanted. God gave Jacob everything necessary for his life, which turned out to be a covenant, a promise, a covenant made with God, God saying, I'm your God, I'm your God. God. I have been your God from the beginning. I will be your God throughout everything. This covenant was made. Within the wounded, blessed relationship, Jacob saw the face of God, and he lived to tell the tale. We don't just see the face of God in something mysterious or supernatural, although that's part of it. We see the face of God in those that forgive, We see the face of God in the reflection in the mirror when we're able to step up. When we're able to be the most God-like that God will allow us to be. What is comfort and safety compared to that? Of course, this is all just talk until you have a stranger on your back, smelling of heaven and pummeling you for all your worth. This may all just be a story until you're in the middle of the night wrestling with whatever it is you're wrestling with, feeling your hip out of joint, feeling displaced, not knowing if you're going to make it the next day. And all I can say is when it happens, don't let anyone tell you that there's something terribly wrong with you. Don't let anyone convince you that if if it were really God, it wouldn't be scary and it certainly wouldn't hurt. Hang on with everything that is in you, even if it does hurt. Insist on a blessing to go with your wound and don't let go until you have one out of it. Look deeply into it for God. Then thank God for your life, limp and all, and find your way home. God, we thank you in a way that we don't understand. For the mystery of chaos, for the mystery of suffering, for the mystery of struggle, as sure as we know that you are in the bright and wonderful, as sure as we know that you are in the triumph, the victory, we know that you rest among the shadows with us, that you walk us through the valley of the shadow of death, that we need fear, no evil, when we are with you. So we lift this day up to you. We pray that we might see you in the middle of the night, in the midst of our struggle. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.